0: Welcome to episode 56 of Teach Me Tiger. Disclaimer. 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 I hardly know her. This show is not suitable for young listeners due to explicit language and sometimes explicit themes. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Hi, tiger. Teach me tiger.
0: How to kiss you? Whoa, 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 whoa. teach me tiger the show where we talk to our friends who are sometimes experty or enthusiastic and we learn some new things. Woo! I'm Melody. I'm Liz. Sometimes we do shows in which we are experty because as I always say we have internet connections. Yep. And so Liz and I have both done some research and we will present our findings oh, to yeah.
1: all of you today. I've got mine here on my phone. Look at those notes. Whoa, you printed yours out, yeah, girl. Wow, Yours were way more in depth than mine. <laughs> I kind of just
0: got really into it and got into like a deep dive, and then I had to like follow up on things that some people said, and like, I don't know. I just went down a deep hole, Lenny Riefenstahl's hole.
1: <laughs> wow, I can't wait. Oh, so both of ours are gonna be like, well, yours are gonna be more related to the Nazis than mine, but mine have a touch of the Nazi, really? Huh. yeah huh? you'll find out I
0: specifically like didn't research Roman Polanski at all like I didn't look him up at all I know he's like maybe kind of pervy and maybe children are involved maybe oh that's you don't know anything about him no because I wanted you to tell me so Liz is talking about Roman
1: Polanski woo yeah or not <laughs> what I, said, I went woo and then I was like uh or not oh right he's <laughs> <It's> a controversial <laughs> figure <laughs> Right.
0: Yes, I um I feel like our, our theme this episode is problematic filmmakers.
1: Yes. I had written at the top of my notes Hollywood scandals, but Lenny Riefenstahl wasn't involved in Hollywood, so yeah, problematic filmmakers.
0: With Nazi connections <laughs> specifically. Yeah.
1: well he doesn't you'll find out you'll hear it
0: I can't wait so yeah it might get a bit dark but we'll try to keep it fun with our fun personalities and our everlasting bond of female
1: friendship (laughs) Uh. later we'll pee together we'll hold hands and pee god oh yeah man I can't wait till you can like well I suppose I stayed at my friend's trailer thingy yesterday that was fun we didn't go near each other maybe I could come up and sleep in your backyard sometime Yeah. Last night was the first night I haven't slept in my house in four months. And it was. I've been snoring a lot. I probably have sleep apnea. I'm going to go see the doctor. It's the first night that J.M. slept (laughs) properly in like almost a month. (laughs) He was like, it was amazing. I just slept. And then in the morning I woke up. Poor guy. Oh, well. I know. (laughs) It's awful. Does he wear earplugs? He does. They're not working. He's a really light sleeper. Oh. I got him these fancy like Swedish made earplugs. That are supposed to be more attenuated to snoring, and that didn't really work, and he's just a really light sleeper. Right. So, ah well, we'll work it out.
0: It sounds like a real Princess in the Peace situation. Well,
1: Caitlin, so we, they have this, like, trailer and a little cabin, my friends, where I stayed last night, so Caitlin Mm -hmm. and I slept on either end of the trailer, you know, those old-fashioned trailers with a little stove and stuff, and Caitlin recorded my snoring. Yeah. And then woke me up to go get her earplugs. Oh, no. It was pretty rough. She sent me the recording it's it sounds like I'm dying like it sounds like I don't I'm not breathing
0: if we have any experts (laughs) on sleep disorders and sleep apnea listening right now
1: (laughs) let's talk about it (laughs) yeah man and the other thing is is that at first I was like ah jm it can't be that bad I don't feel tired but now I'm starting to feel tired and taking naps on my lunch break at work oh boy (laughs) right (laughs) So I might have to get one of those awful machines. I hope you're
0: not pregnant.
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm not fucking pregnant. I'm not fucking pregnant, all right? <laughs> <sighs> okay, so
0: was this adventure, would you call it a week peak?
1: Oh, yeah, it was a pretty solid week peak. Oh, I also, this is another week peak. Should I just say it? Yeah, what's your week peak, Liz? I got another tattoo. It's like a magical space humpback whale. It's beautiful. It's a little, it's a little cartoony. But I kind of like it. I like it a lot. I love it. Yeah. I just got it yesterday, actually. It was a busy day. I, like, went and got it, and then drove to my friend's house. Nice. Cool, huh? Yeah. I'm pretty happy. That was a week peak. It was fun to, like, get a tattoo, feel like a 17-year-old, even though I'm 30. Yeah.
0: I'm about ready for another one, I think.
1: Yeah. They're so addictive. I sat in the studio yesterday for two and a half hours with a mask on and everything. Everyone's wearing masks.
0: I know. I hate them so much, though.
1: Yeah. It was, uh... I mean, it... It was hard because this it's on the back of my forearm, so I actually had to lay flat yeah. on the chair. with like It's like a massage table with a hole. Okay. And I had to lay with my face in that and my arm back for two and a half hours, and it was really uncomfortable.
0: <laughs> yeah, with like fabric over your mouth.
1: Yes, and so I kept on reaching underneath the table and pulling the mask away from my face a bit. Because I was having a hard time breathing. Yeah. <laughs> and typically masks don't bother me. Like, I don't have the, like, I can't breathe and all those, like, bullshit people who don't want to wear masks. But because of right. just being in a little hole like this, I'm putting my hands around my, <laughs> my face, it was harder. Yeah. And then, you know, we're both chatting, so where are you from? Blah, blah, blah the weird, like, hairstylist oh, talk, God. but it's with a tattoo artist, so it's, like, hours uh-huh. and hours and hours. Uh huh. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, yeah.
0: I work retail, but wearing the mask in the store, you're trying to, like, chat with people with this mask on, and You can't always tell people's facial expression just from their eyes, so it's hard to, like, have a normal conversation with people. Plus, I drink coffee on my way to work, and then I get there, and I put the mask on, and I'm like, oh my god, I smell like a dumpster, and I'm breathing in my own (laughs) coffee breath.
1: (laughs) It's the worst. Uh, I smell like a dumpster. I'm sure you don't smell like a dumpster.
0: You're right. I'm a very sexy woman, obviously. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Uh, yeah, it's it's tough, but um, obviously whatever works. Yeah. That's my week peak. What about you?
0: My week peak... It's actually from a couple weeks ago, but whatever. I got a new job that I'm starting in September. I've told you about it, Liz, but for our um, leagues of listeners, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be running a store... I don't want to get stocked, so I'm not going to say what store it is. <laughs> How many people listen
1: to this podcast?
0: Um, 37. No, I'm kidding. It's more than that. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to be running a store starting in September. And so I decided just at least for a little while, I'm not going to accept any new commissions because as you know, Liz, other people listening might not. I do commission-based portraits for people. For money. Yeah, for money, but not enough money. Like truly not enough money. And so... For right now, I put a thing on my website. I took down the price page and put a thing that said I'm not accepting commissions. And what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna jack my prices because I end up working on things for like days and days and days and then charge like 200 bucks. So you know what? Yeah, I'm
1: gonna charge like 600 bucks.
0: Yeah, you need to do it. And then. Not very many people will be able to afford it, but that's fine, because I don't really want to do it anyway.
1: No, that's that's the way to do it. You have to price yourself fairly. You have to ensure that you're getting paid well, or else you'll not want to do it. Mm-hmm. And it'll just be like, you're getting paid like two bucks an hour.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's not enough at all. It's been pretty liberating to just be like, fuck it.
1: I'm not going to do this anymore. Fuck that. Right? That's. It's been the same with um photography Yeah, for me. I still want to be a photographer and do photography things. But in terms of weddings and stuff, yeah. I ha- like I'm just like I'm not gonna do anymore. Yeah, fuck it. See you later.
0: <laughs> and <laughs> and the other thing is when I start working in September and getting a salary, I'm gonna pay someone to do some of the podcast stuff that's hard.
1: Yeah, why not like all of the editing?
0: Maybe not all of it. I'm not ready to relinquish that much control, but I, I think I'm gonna pay someone to like make the audio sound like top notch and take out all the ums and likes and stuff, and then I'll go through mm-hmm. and do like the rest of it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's what I'm thinking (laughs) that's cool get someone to do the boring stuff that I hate
1: and it sounds like from this lady because I actually met her a couple weeks ago the way she was describing it to me was that she was like I just want the back area that's like I want uh, Melody's all of her art to be back there and I just really want you know her work to really take off she could just have a gallery back there of all of her stuff yeah
0: well part of the package is that normally she takes a 30% commission on art Mm -hmm. but she's going to let me sell whatever I want that I've made at no commission. So I just take the money home. Sweet, Which is pretty cool. So I'm going to make paintings that I want to make and make prints of stuff and just sell it at the store. That's nice. And fuck all, fuck all y'all. Fuck that noise. (laughs) That'll be cool. Nice. Isn't that crazy? (laughs) Yes. Congrats. (laughs) Thank you. Liz, should we do an icebreaker? Sure.
1: Roll up your
0: sleeves, pull up your socks Reach on into Melody's box Icebreakers Okay, reach your hand through the tunnels of the interweb and the intertubes Oh, she's reaching her hand, I can see it Oh, she's digging around in my box (laughs) Um... I'm going to change this. We've done this question before because we've recycled some of them. So I'm just going to change the actions a bit. All right. Would you rather be compelled to <laughs> give a wet willy to everyone you meet or be compelled to um, wet willy or I'll keep this one. Give a wedgie to anyone wearing a mm, purple shirt.
1: Wedgie. Yeah. Less people. I feel like purple shirts are less popular.
0: Okay, wait, black shirt.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Still wedgie. All right. Yeah. Cool. Because otherwise, I'd have to stick my finger in people's ears. That's pretty gross, actually, for you. After having put it in my mouth and then have to do it again and again and again. (laughs) (laughs) That would
0: be terrible everyone you meet can you imagine walking down the street you'd be like you'd be covered in drool from all of the like in and out action and like let's not even talk about what your finger is going to taste like gross
1: (laughs) oh my god that's awful
0: I'm going to give wedgies
1: too definitely okay cool cool (laughs) um okay
0: Liz how's your ice feeling broken smashed shattered
1: are you a broken woman broken woman all right <laughs> Icebreakers. Okay, so I'm gonna be talking about in terms of problematic filmmakers. Oh, I should have done Woody Allen too. Oh
0: yeah, he would have been a good one. Oh isn't yeah.
1: he he's like married to his daughter, basically his he's adoptive mar- daughter. <laughs> he's married to his adoptive daughter. Holy it, Hannah. That is fucked. <laughs> it really it really is. And what's sad about him. And in yours, too, because we covered some Lenny Riefenstahl films in art school, is that you have these people who've, like, basically done bad things. You know, they've they've victimized people, they've taken advantage of them, sometimes they've committed terrible crimes, and then everyone's like, but they're movies! They're so yeah, good! I know.
0: Like, Woody, Woody Allen you- still works
1: lots! So does Roman Polanski. He just won Best Director at the César Awards in France this year. It's his fifth Cesar.
0: I'm going to find out why that's such a gross thing for you to be telling me.
1: In a minute, yeah. You, you tell me about him, right? <laughs> yeah, and so there's a lot of people who defend Woody Allen. There's a lot of people who defend right. Roman Polanski because they make interesting movies. Woody Al- I There's a bunch of Woody Allen movies that I love. There's also a bunch that are really terrible. They both have that in common, that they've made a lot of movies, and they've made a bunch of stinkers, in my opinion, and a bunch of really good ones. <laughs> right. Okay, so Roman Polanski. I'm going to give you some background. All right. Roman Polanski was born August 3rd. It's almost his birthday. 1933 in Paris, France.
0: Hey, my dad was born in 1933. Oh, same age.
1: Hmm. Except your dad's a nice man. That's true. His birth name was Raymond Terry Liebling, and his mom and dad are from Poland. Mm-hmm. And they're Jewish. Uh, so Roman Polanski's Jewish, which is why the Nazis get involved here. Okay. Unfortunately, they moved back to Krakow in 1937, and within about two years poland is invaded by the german army there's a ghetto of jewish people in warsaw and there's a ghetto of jewish people in krakow and what they mean by ghetto is that the germans rounded up all the jewish people and made them live in one particular like walled-off section of krakow and also in warsaw um so they ghettoized them and some people stayed there for the whole war some people got sent off to the different camps and died Some people got sent off to work camps and survived. So um, they moved back to Krakow in 1937. So really awful timing. So the family moved into one of the Jewish ghettos, Roman Polanski, or as his name was then, Raymond. I think he only went to school for six weeks before they kicked all the Jewish kids out of school. And there was a raid. His mother was taken to Auschwitz. She died not long afterwards. Which is super sad. Mm -hmm, And uh, his dad was taken to a work camp called Mathhausen, which is scary because the Germans did shit like calculate how many calories they'd need to feed people to do 18 months of work, you know, like it was really methodical and crazy. So... They were
0: very mean to people. They were, yeah, it was a rough go. I mean, that's like an understatement, obviously, but... Yeah. Really awful. Yeah. Terrible. Yeah.
1: So... Roman, little baby Roman, he was, like, 10. He escaped the Krakow ghetto in 1943, um, and some Polish Roman Catholics hid him. And as you know, it's, like, a huge deal to – it was a huge deal to shelter a Jewish person. During that time, they could have been shot, so it was really brave of them. And he got interviewed by a priest (laughs) at one point, a Catholic priest. And he was kind of found out because he didn't know anything about Mm – like, he was just pretending, right? He didn't know anything about the Catholic faith. So – Basically, Roman Polanski lived out the rest of the war, randomly staying with people, living rough by himself, like on the street in the wilderness, and staying in foster homes. And he was like 10, 11, 12, which is crazy. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So that's a rough start. Doesn't excuse anything, but it is kind of bananas. And if you've seen the movie The Pianist with Adrian Brody, Roman Polanski directed that, and it's about a Jewish pianist who basically survives the war by hiding in buildings. Right. Like abandoned buildings. And he's starving by the end of it. It's really awful. And that's partly inspired by his own childhood experience. So, thank goodness, when the war was over, his father survived the work camp. And so, he was reunited with his father. And so, that kind of ends the tragedy well, it doesn't quite, actually. <laughs> it ends the first kind of major tragedy of his life, which is that he had to survive the Holocaust and he lost his mom. So then, you know, his dad remarried to a woman he never really liked. Whatever. Wah, wah. Broken home. Not broken home. Take that out. His mom died in Auschwitz. Right. But he didn't really like his his second wife, his dad's second wife. But he was always interested in movies, he went to film school in Poland, which was by then communist, right? Because the Eastern Bloc became kind of part of the USSR after World War II. So he didn't really like how oppressive contemporary Poland was at that time, because of the Soviet government. So he moved to France where he started making films and then he moved to England where he made his kind of like English language debut. Okay. And he started making movies that people were noticing. I can tell you, I think one of the ones that he made right off the bat was something about vampires that I thought was hysterical. Let me just see if I can find the name of it (laughs) because I forgot to write it down.
0: Eh, 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 Looking on the internet.
1: (laughs) Eh, eh, eh. Looking on the internet. Cut this out. Cut this out. (laughs) Fearless Vampire Killers that's what it was (laughs) 1967 he made Fearless Vampire Killers and that was like a silly movie but basically it was one of the movies that he was getting some notice for in the states Mm mm-hmm Um, and he made a bunch of French movies that people thought were really amazing, and so he made a movie in 1965 called Repulsion with Catherine Deneuve. Catherine Deneuve is, like, a huge star in France in the 60s and 70s. So he's doing well. Like, he's become a well-known movie director, does eventually move to the States, and I'm actually not clear on where he meets her, but he met, fell in love, and married a woman named Sharon Tate. And... Wasn't she murdered? She was murdered. So... In 1969, they were living in a a house in Los Angeles that they had rented, and she was very pregnant. Yeah. Um, And the Manson family came to the house, and if you don't know who Charles Manson is, that's a whole other podcast, but Google him. They actually thought that different people lived in the house. They thought like a film director that had rejected Charles Manson lived there, but that person was gone, and these new people were renting it. And so, Roman Polanski's very pregnant, very beautiful wife, who he liked a lot, um, was murdered by the Manson family. And she was, like, eight or nine months pregnant. Like, it was really sad. So that's another horrible, tragic thing to have happen to him. That is... Whatever. (laughs) Wow. I'm only saying that because while it is really awful and I feel bad for him and, you know, no one should have to go through that. Yeah. But I wanted to give you that background because I would feel weird not saying that. Right. The thing we're going to talk about now, I'm not excusing the bad thing that he did with the bad things that happened. Right. So... This is neither here nor there, but Roman Polanski was a bit of a ladies' man. Like, he never really was faithful to any of his wives. He doesn't really go for that. He thinks, like, men are manly and supposed to have many women in their lives.
0: Right. Do you know if his, like, lady friends had many men in their lives? Right? I don't know. Hmm. Curious. I bet not, but I don't know.
1: (laughs) A few years pass after Sharon Tate is murdered. He's really sad, which makes sense. Right. And enter a woman named Samantha Geimer. And I shouldn't say woman. Okay. I should say child, adolescent. How old? 13. Mm. So Sharon Tate was murdered in 1969. Samantha Geimer came into his life in 1977. So the incident happened in 1977. So that's 8 years later. Okay. A little background on Samantha Geimer. She was 13 when she met Roman Polanski. He was then forty three. He's alive now, but he's he's an old man now. She's described her parents as stoners, sort of like Southern California free love hippies. You know, they weren't really too worried about anything, not really suspicious about stuff. Right. Her dad sold advertising for a magazine called Marijuana Monthly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. And her mom wanted to be an actor, and she encouraged her daughters to pursue it as well, you know, like go to acting classes, get agents, be in magazines if you can, absolutely. So her mom, as this aspiring actor, actually met Polanski at a party. And I don't know what the exchange was between them, but she knew who he was because he was well known at the time. Because he'd already made Rosemary's Baby, which is a really famous movie. He made that a year before Sharon Tate was murdered. He'd already made movies that were in the public eye. So, like, people knew who he was. Plus, he was the husband of Sharon Tate. So, that really, like, people knew who Roman Polanski was. Right. So, he said, I'd love to take photos of your daughter for a spread that I'm doing in French Vogue. And <laughs> for my portfolio. <laughs> right. And she said, Oh, okay, of course. Like, and so she went home and told her daughter. And they were all like, Yeah, this is awesome. Let's do it. This is so cool. This is what we want. So she had her mom's permission to go. She got picked up by him. And he took her to Jack Nicholson's house.
0: What? My Jack?
1: (laughs) Is he your Jack?
0: Wait, is Jack Nicholson going to be a bad guy
1: now? (laughs) No, he's not a bad guy. Okay. So they made Chinatown together in 1974. Okay. So they were already buddies because they made Chinatown, uh, like, three years before that. Jack Nicholson was not at the house. He was on a skiing trip in Colorado at the time. okay. And so they started doing the photos. Angelica Houston, who was Jack Nicholson's live-in girlfriend at the time, had been around and was kind of suspicious about what was going on because... This was, like, a fairly young child. I assume, I'm kind of mind-reading here, but I can assume Angelica Houston was like, WTF, Roman? We're letting you use Mm. our house while you're here? You're bringing 13-year-olds over? What the fuck?
0: So she was around when he brought this 13-year-old girl?
1: Yeah, so she was around after they were already in a room with closed doors.
0: Oh. So she
1: was, apparently, she banged on the door. So I'll tell you what happened. Okay. When they started doing the shoot... Sam has described. She goes by Sam. Sam Geimer. She's described herself as she was built like a little kid. Still, she didn't even wear a bra. She said like an undershirt. So Roman gave her champagne. He gave her half a quaalude, which really quaaludes barely don't exist anymore because they stopped making. Is them. that
0: what Cosby was giving people? It is, isn't it?
1: I think he was giving them something like quaaludes, but quaaludes are really hard to get because they're they literally don't get made right anymore. So
0: if you find some, <laughs> hold them close. <laughs> <laughs> Is Quaalude fun or no?
1: I don't know. I've never participated, but they were pretty popular in the 70s. I think
0: people had fun stuff. with Quaaludes. I think that was a thing.
1: Because it makes you all... Yeah, it's a sedative. Yeah. It makes you all loopy. And Okay, so he drugged her. He drugged her. He gave her part of a Quaalude. Did he slip her the Quaalude or did he say, like, here, take this He's, and she swallowed he it? He said, here, take this and she swallowed it. All right. And he said, have the champagne and get in the hot tub with your clothes off, like all this stuff. And in her mind, she was a kid and she was... Going to listen to what an adult said and, you know, an adult who's possibly going to help her with her budding acting career. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, then he raped her. And at this point, Angelica Houston was getting suspicious and was banging on the door. And afterwards, he took her home. Then she told her mom what happened. And her mom called the police. Roman Polanski was arrested for statutory rape. Because he's 43 and she was 13 and he drugged her. He underwent a psychiatric assessment. Okay. And I don't know why they decided he needed to have a psychiatric assessment. But they did that and it was like 40 days he was in prison and undergoing this treatment. They wanted to see like what was up. Hmm. She she had to go on. There was a trial. There was all this stuff. It was really upsetting. She kind of got re-victimized a lot throughout all of this. Oh, man. And, yeah. And I've heard um like on You're Wrong About, that other podcast that we like a lot. Yeah. They often kind of push through, like, the law and justice, law and order system in the United States often doesn't listen to the victim, Mm -hmm. and they'll just keep pushing through, and they're like, no, no, we've got to catch the guy, we've got to put him away, and the victim might be like, I don't want to do this anymore, I just want to go on with my life, etc., etc., and you'll see in a few minutes that that's kind of what Sam wanted. I think she was, like, maybe 14? No, it's closer to when it actually happened, but basically, Roman got released from the mental health assessment. Right. And then realized that the judge who was hearing the case was going to put him back in jail for maybe quite some time, like a few years. And so he fled to France. So he just took off. He learned he was going to go back to jail and he took off. And so he's been, over the years, he's been arrested a couple other times. And like they've tried to extradite him or they've tried to like maybe try him elsewhere or intervals, tried to do something. It's never worked. Okay. He's just lived in Europe for the last 40 years He continues to make movies. If any Americans want to work with him, they just fly over there. Johnny Depp's made movies with him. He made a movie called Carnage in the early 2000s with John C. Riley and Jodie Foster. And they all made the movie with him. Like, people just, they don't seem to worry about it. However, Sam Geimer, this lady, she had this really interesting thing to say in an article I read about her. She said, listen, I was raised in pre-HIV sex-positive Southern California in the 60s and 70s. Okay. While what happened to me shouldn't have happened to me, Yeah. I did not feel scarred or traumatized or like I was quote-unquote dirty afterwards because I lived in a sex-positive atmosphere. Right. So she has actually said over and over again over the years, I don't want to talk about it anymore. Right. When his name is in the news, I don't want my name to come up. Oh, yeah. You know, he would get arrested in Switzerland – And she was living in Hawaii for a while. And then there'd be people outside of her house with cameras. Oh, that's terrible. Because she like had kids and is married and is like, just trying to get on with her life. So the news's obsession with him has dragged her along. And she's just like, let's give up everybody who cares. It was a long time ago. I'm fine. You know? Right. She had kind of a rocky teenagehood. She did a lot of drugs and partied, but like kind of who doesn't? and she had a baby at 18, but everything turned out fine for her, it sounds like. She actually did sue him in civil court in 1988, and she did get a six-figure settlement. She had a career as a secretary, so she's never had a ton of money, so that was useful for her and her husband like to raise their kids, because they have three kids.
0: Right. You said he got arrested multiple times? Did he do the same thing to other people?
1: No, he's been arrested several times for the same charge. Oh.
0: Like when he's crossed a border or something.
1: Yeah. And there's this whole big AP, Associated Press, timeline of his legal stuff. And it's really long. And I found it here. And maybe we could put a link in the notes so someone could read through it. But it's really long. Like the French authorities will arrest him one time. Or the Swiss authorities will arrest him one time or some prosecutor in Los Angeles will try and bring up some new evidence about what happened but like Roman Polanski's still in France so nothing's ever stuck you know what I mean?
0: Why are the French or the Swiss police arresting him there if they're not extraditing him?
1: Like I just don't get it. Neither do I. So in 1978, Polanski this is right after it happened, Polanski flees the United States on the eve of sentencing after learning that a Los Angeles Superior Court judge Lawrence Rittenbend intended to send Polanski back to prison. So he's like fuck no I'm leaving so he leaves. Okay. Polanski wants the lawyer he, he has his lawyers try and dismiss the charges against him and his motion is supported by the victim by Sam Geimer. She's and that's in 2008. So Polanski in 2009 is arrested in Switzerland and extradition proceedings begin. Okay. Oh god, it's just a mess. It's just a whole mess as I'm reading through it. It's just a whole international mess of Switzerland, France, America, like nothing, The the and his lawyers are really good. Yeah, because he's like, mega rich. Yeah, so that's what it seems like. Like, the Polish Supreme Court rules that Polanski will not be extradited to the United States. Like, the Europeans don't want to extradite him, and the Swiss tried to, but it didn't work out. You know, and Samantha Geimer, the victim, she appeared in a courtroom in 2017, which is only three years ago, asking the court to end the case, calling it a 40-year sentence imposed both on her and the director. Right. And so in the middle of all of this, he won Best Director for the Pianist in 2003. (sighs) He's won five Césars, which are basically the Oscars of France. And in 2018, the Film Academy expelled Polanski and Bill Cosby. Okay. So,
0: do you have any idea, like, what, what does he say about it? Is he just like, I do Lip have. Sealed?
1: I know about this too. Okay, tell me. No, no. Um, so, so Samantha's like, yes, it happened. It wasn't consensual, but like, let's get on with it. I'm fine. Yeah. He has said that basically it happened. He even wrote about it in his autobiography, but that it wasn't rape. <laughs> <laughs> even though he was 43 and she was 13. Right. And so that really reveals to me, like, He's he's delusional a little bit because he thinks that he had consent from a thirteen year old after he gave her champagne and part of a quaalude. Did he take the pictures that he said he was going to take? I mean, he pho- yeah, I have never seen one. Um I don't <laughs> know if they exist on the internet somewhere. They probably don't. But he was taking pictures. Sam said she he, he was photographing her. I'm huh. sh- so he just- he's just
0: like photographing this like. 13 year old and being like, wow, I really feel chemistry with this girl.
1: (laughs) I guess so. Yeah. And I think it's kind of the same with people like um, Woody Woody Allen. I almost said Woody Harrelson. Don't don't use Woody Harrelson's name in vain, Liz. Jesus. Sorry, Woody Harrelson. We know you're perfect and you live in Hawaii (laughs) and smoke pot and do yoga. Um, So handsome. So handsome. (laughs) Okay, so to sum it up, it's an international quagmire. Of quagmire, yes, good word. International quagmire of extradition, not going through properly from Europe, and American lawyers still trying to get him extradited, but but against against the express wishes of the victim involved, which is interesting, and that's what right the folks that you're wrong about often talk about. And so she's like, "Leave it alone. I don't want this to happen." Right. And he gave her some money. Well, he had to give her money during a court settlement. And has admitted to it, but believes that he didn't commit a crime. And actually sent her an email once that said, I am sorry for all that has happened over the last many years that you've been dragged through this, you and your family. Which I think is so bananas. Because she's fine with it, and that's fine. If she's fine with it, that's the most important thing. He's still a creep. Yeah. He's still a creep. He still had sex with a 13-year-old. Yeah.
0: So, all of these, like... Super giant celebrities yep.
1: go to work with him in France or Switzerland or wherever. Kate Winslet, John C. Riley, Johnny Depp, Jodie Foster. Those are all I can think of right now, but there's more. Have you
0: seen or read of any interviews where they're actually asked about like working with him? Does
1: anybody ever talk about that? No, I haven't seen anything about it. And it's kind of like people now talking about Woody Allen yeah. and like people like Diane Keaton and Scarlett Johansson, who have both famously worked with him a lot, with Woody Allen, they're like, no, I believe him. What? How? How? How can you? Like, it's ridiculous. So I think people just, they just want to be in a good movie. They want to, like, work with someone they think is super talented, and they're just worried about their careers. Right. And now that they've already made these movies with them, and all this stuff has come out, I mean, who knows how much they knew when they were really making the movie, you know?
0: Yeah. But, I mean, people know pretty widely that
1: he's a creep, right? Oh, yeah. Rowan Polanski, 100%. (laughs) Absolutely. People should have known. Woody Allen, what did he do other than marry his daughter? I
0: mean, what's so wrong with that?
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, his biological daughter... So, he married his adopted daughter right sunyi previn his adopted his biological daughter whose name escapes me for the moment um has said over and over and over again that her father abused her sexually abused her and her biological brother so woody woody allen's son Mm -hmm. has is a is a journalist now yeah and and an author he's super cool Ronan Farrow. His name is Ronan Farrow. Yes. Okay. I've heard that name. So he took his mother's, he took Mia Farrow, his mother's last name. So Ronan Farrow has said, you know, I believe my sister. You should believe my sister. Right. And you shouldn't make movies with my father anymore. You shouldn't give him any more money. You shouldn't keep on, you know, helping him. Just because he's abused a child and potentially more than one child. And Scarlett Johansson came under pretty major fire because she's worked in a bunch. She's worked with Woody Allen a bunch of times. And she was like, "Mm," you know, didn't really believe Dylan Farrow, his daughter. So it's, ugh, it's the whole like men in power have power, you know? But the interesting thing about the Rowan Polanski case is that other people have come out against him. There have been women over the last 40 years who said that he's done things to them as well. That would make sense, because he's not going to do it one time. Mm-hmm. Like,
0: that's not... You don't just, like, get someone... Like, drug someone and rape them once, and then that's it. Just that one time. I don't think. It's it's very intentional. It's not like things got out of hand and whatever, like, and they were two 16-year-olds who got really drunk, and then... I don't know. You know what I mean? It's a 43-year-old man giving drugs to a 13-year-old. That's intentional
1: and pathological, maybe? Like, I don't know. Yeah, it's incredibly suspicious. Yeah. And immoral. But it's the only kind of case, even though so other women have come out against him, but um, that's the case that has stuck to him for this whole time. No one else took him to court. I mean, maybe, but not, th- not that I found in my rigorous research. <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's, and I mean, Roman Polanski, movies he's made, I should have done this at the beginning, Rosemary's Baby, The Pianist, Carnage, Ninth Gate... Ghostwriter from 2010, which is actually a really good movie with Ewan McGregor. Okay. But that means that Ewan McGregor made a movie with Roman Polanski as director. Uh, Kim Cattrall from Sex and the City is also in that movie. So they were all like, let's go to Europe and make a movie with Roman Polanski. It's
0: weird, right? It's crazy. Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. That does actually dovetail nicely into what I'm going to talk about, because you're talking about people working with Roman Polanski because they want to be attached to like his projects because he makes interesting movies of the notoriety that comes with roman polanski oddly
1: that too yeah yeah so
0: lenny riefenshaw her whole thing is that she was known as like hitler's filmmaker well i'm gonna get into it all but it's sort of a question of was she just like an ambitious young woman who took advantage of like opportunities that were not afforded to women like ever at that time to do these huge projects and like make money and work in the field mm-hmm. or or what that was definitely an element mm-hmm. of what happened now how she handled it is a totally different thing
1: right cuz was she was she like a hardcore nazi or was she just taking an opportunity
0: exactly thank you for saying right. what i couldn't say liz
1: <laughs> you're welcome anytime
0: <laughs> okay so I'm going to get into it. All right. I actually wrote down my sources this time, because the last time we did one of these, you like said where you researched, and then I was like, "Oh, I, I need to be like Liz.
1: I can say mine, too, real fast. Okay. I'll tell you where I got my information. So, okay. a Guardian article with Samantha Geimer, an AP News timeline of Roman Polanski's four-decade underage sex case, which I only barely read and ham-fistedly related back to you on the podcast, so I can give Melody that link another article on the website Deadline, talking about Roman Polanski and Samantha Geimer's relationship, and then, of course, motherfucking Wikipedia.
0: Yeah, Wikipedia. Wikipedia. I also used Wikipedia. Cool. (laughs) Not exclusively, though. Me neither. I watched the documentary, The Wonderful Horrible Life of Lenny Riefenstahl, which is three hours long. Wow. You can find the whole thing on YouTube. It's very long. Oh my god. Uh, But interesting, and it it was, um, good to practice my German because a lot of it's in German. It is subtitled, but it's three hours long and mostly German. So Whoa. <laughs> enjoy, <laughs> um, if you watch it, which you probably won't. I read a New Yorker article, her obituary in the New York times and like a bunch of other online articles. Also in university, I did a minor degree in German, as you know, and, uh, In my, like, second or third year German class, I did an oral presentation, like a group project, and we talked about Lenny Riefenstahl, but I was partying pretty hard at the time, so I don't really remember it, so this was all fresh, pretty much.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I was right there with you, like, literally. (laughs)
0: Literally, we lived together at that time. (laughs) So, Lenny Riefenstahl is probably the most well-known female filmmaker in the Western world. I think she is.
1: Actually, still to this day, even though you've got, like, Nora Ephron and, like, what's another female filmmaker, film director? Sophia Coppola? Sophia Coppola. Can we name any more than those two? <laughs> Fuck. Yeah. It's not, Hollywood's not great for ladies being directors.
0: Yeah. So, she's probably the most well-known, but also probably the most problematic, she's widely known as Hitler's filmmaker. Wikipedia describes her as a German film director, actress and Nazi sympathizer. So she would deny that title, although she was convicted of it in court. She would deny that and she vehemently denied a lot of stuff up until she died. She basically, she kind of feels like she had nothing to do with the Nazis. Like she was just making art and doing her work and she wasn't a member of the Nazi party, and it wasn't propaganda, it was just beautiful filmmaking, or effective filmmaking, and she was very disappointed that they used it that way. Mm, I don't know. <laughs> so, anyway. She died in 2003 at the age of 101.
1: Amazing.
0: So she's most well-known for her films made just before the war. The most, most well-known one is called Triumph des Villains, which means Triumph of the Will, and that was released in 1935, and Olympia, which was released in 1938. She won Best Foreign Documentary for Triumph of the Wills at the Venice Film Festival in 1935, and Olympia won Best Foreign Language Film at two festivals in 1938 and 1941. So her films were met with like great acclaim and accolades and awards at the time. And Because she was so celebrated as a great innovator and a talent in film before the Second World War, and then so vilified for the remainder of her life, whether that was earned or not, it's certainly true. Like, she did suffer a very bad reputation, Because of that, and because she basically claimed it was just all a misunderstanding... That's interesting. I'm going to talk about her and try to present both sides. Like, was she a Nazi? Was she an aspirational woman who was scorned by men in the film industry and scapegoated in like a post-war witch hunt? That's the narrative she would have, you believe. But which one was it? We can't really know for sure, but to me, with all the research I did, and I will present it all to you... It feels like she's a little bit full of shit. Uh I don't think that she was like a straight up Nazi and like wanted to kill Jewish people. Uh But I think she knew a lot more than she let on.
1: Right. Like she knew what her stuff was being used for. Yeah. All right.
0: Yeah, totally. So little disclaimer before I get into it. I'm not a Nazi sympathizer. Neither am I. Oh, Thanks for letting (laughs) us know. Although I'm talking (laughs) about the accomplishments and legacy of someone who's widely thought of as one. That doesn't mean that I believe in the nazi ideations at all just putting that out there
1: i believe in i know i know you're not like that Mel.
0: i know nazis the first thing that comes to mind when you think of me liz
1: (laughs) oh my god in this day and age it's so that we still have nazis like neo-nazis it's oh god it's not even funny
0: (laughs) it's wild yeah anyway i'm super not a nazi that's that that's my disclaimer right on (laughs) okay i am super not a nazi just Putting that out there. Okay, I'm going to give you a little background. Lenny Riefenshaw started out in dance. So at an early age, her mother saw a lot of potential in her and supported her artistic endeavors. While her father wanted her to do something more practical, he was like a plumber or something. And also Lenny was very athletic from a young age. When she was 16, her mom enrolled her in dance and ballet at the Grimm Writer Dance School in Berlin without her father's knowledge, and she became a star pupil there when was she born 1902 she was born in 1902 died 2003 so she went on to attend several dance academies and became known for her interpretive dance which sort of made me laugh like
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: interpretive dance contemporarily is kind of a joke
1: <laughs> yeah a little bit for sure a
0: little bit a little bit Anyway, she was known for her interpretive dance and she toured Europe in a show with Max Reinhardt, who was a very big deal at the time, big producer guy. And both he and the fellow funding the show were Jewish. So I'm not sure that that tells us she's not an anti-Semite, but she would probably use that in her defense.
1: But there were so many, there were so many wealthy, wealthy, well-educated, uh, business owning Jewish people in Europe before the war mm-hmm. who were you know old families who'd been there forever. Yeah. Like Jewish people were integrated into all of Europe. Right? And like so right. e- if you were gonna do business or do stuff, you're probably gonna be doing it with Jewish people. So I don't think that proves probably. she's not a Nazi.
0: No, but I think that she did sort of use that rhetoric a bit of like, oh, you know, I had Jewish friends and I worked with Jewish right, people. Right.
1: So I can't be a Nazi. Right.
0: In doing her dance, she suffered a number of injuries that led to a knee surgery and ongoing knee problems. And according to her, this is what led her to falling in love with film. So she told this, like, very flowery tale about how she was at the train station running late, waiting to get to her doctor appointment on the train. And she saw a poster for this film. What's it called? For the 1924 film Mountain of Destiny. And she said she didn't even make it to her appointment. She just went straight to the theater and watched that film. She watched the shit out of it. <laughs> <laughs> and she loved it. Interesting. So she, afterwards, she arranged a meeting with the lead actor and then managed to get a meeting later with the film's director, Arnold Funk. Arnold Funk. It's kind of funny, like, saying the German words in the context of this English presentation, but we'll, I'll try my best. Right. So she managed to get a meeting with the film's director, Arnold Funk, and insisted that she be in his next film, which is what
1: happened.
0: So she was very tenacious. She like really fucking went after what she wanted and she got it hard. She did it.
1: Well, and also like in 1924, the movie scene and the influential people in Germany, it wasn't that big. Yeah. Right? So she could just be like, I needed, a- I-, I want a meeting with him. And she got one.
0: But I think Germany, in terms of European countries, is a pretty big country. And at that time in 1924, the local scene is the scene. You know? Oh, okay. Don't you think? Right. Right.
1: Well, wouldn't they have been watching, like, American movies, too? Because that was Hollywood, right? right? That was like... Yeah, there was Hollywood.
0: But I don't think Hollywood was as pervasive in Europe, I think is what I'm saying. Right, like
1: Charlie Chaplin... They weren't watching Charlie Chaplin movies? No, they were.
0: And apparently Charlie Chaplin liked her movie Das Blaue Licht, which I'll tell you about in a minute. (laughs) So she was in his film, and she starred with this leading guy, whose name I didn't write down, but something German, (laughs) I think I'd be safe to say. So that film was called The Holy Mountain, and she went on to do a number of films with Funk. He was a pioneer of the mountain film genre. That's hilarious to me. (laughs) (laughs) What's that, you say?
1: Yeah, what is that? What are
0: mountain films? Also known as alpine films, they focus on mountaineering and man's fight against nature, and the protagonists ultimately come back at the end from the mountain in some way changed from the experience. Interesting. That's like the archetypal plot of that type of film.
1: Was this a specifically German genre?
0: Yes, and it was specific to a certain region in Germany that's very mountainous. Right. (laughs) But I think the scene, like I was saying, I think like Germans watched German films. I imagine at the time, lots of Germans didn't even speak English. So right. Hollywood was influential, but it wasn't like today where people are watching all of this American TV and everybody in the world basically speaks English. Right. There was Marlene Dietrich. Dietrich? I don't know how you actually say her name in English. Dietrich? Dietrich, yeah. Dietrich. So there's her. And they were sort of rivals a little bit from what I understand. Um, yeah, she
1: was a, she's famous. She was like a Hollywood actress, but she was German.
0: Yes. So, before the war, she went to America, uh, which Lenny Riefenstahl oh. did not do. She chose to stay home, as she would say. Okay, so anyway, Riefenstahl did a bunch of these mountain films and became a very good climber in the process. She would climb without ropes and climb barefoot on, like, sheer mountain faces, which is insane. <laughs> sounds nuts and I will try to share some film stills on Instagram if I can find them so there's some sort of like myth around her that she was sort of known not to like engage romantically with people in the industry despite many advances in fact there are rumors of her having been Hitler's mistress which she vehemently denied and Goebbels Hitler's um, propaganda minister it, something came uh, some books came out that called the Goebbels diaries, I think. His diaries came out in print not that long ago and he wrote of a close relationship with Lenny Riefenstahl. Like He was saying they were on very friendly terms and she and Hitler and he would have, they'd all have dinner together but she later said, oh well he hit on me and I turned him down so he was just spreading lies about me in his diary. Yeah, it sounds very suspicious. Doesn't it though? And it was suggested in one of the articles I read that um, Fonk's proclivity for having her perform super dangerous stunts, uh, to perform barefoot in the snow, and to like be immersed in freezing cold water, and to be enveloped by literal, albeit small, avalanches. Like he would have her do all this crazy stuff outside in the cold. That it was a result of his like jealousy and misogyny. Like maybe. She turned him down too. Huh, it's, that's it's weird. I, in one of the articles, it said because of this, she was known as the like, as a glacial crevasse or something like that because she was cold to men.
1: It's, right. It's, and because she was probably just trying to like, she was interested in films. Right. And she wanted to be a film director. And she was like, you know what? Can't I just be here and not always have to like be a romantic interest, perhaps? Mm hmm. Yeah. So she.
0: Eventually made her own film. It was another mountain film, Das Blaue Licht, which means The Blue Light in 1932. I've seen it. It is honestly kind of incredible. She technically was a very good filmmaker. She was, she was very good at like angles and she'd use lots of like colored, although it was all black and white, she would use colored filters to make it look like nighttime or to like, she talked about how outside the aperture does a thing, like it closes really quickly. Does that make sense, Liz? Uh, yep. So she would put filters on so that the aperture would stay open longer so that the the images wouldn't be so like sharp
1: and crisp. Yeah, so if you're outside and there's lots of light, then the little hole that opens and closes to let the light in, that's called the aperture, or the shutter. I mean, there's the shutter and then there's the aperture. Okay. So the shutter is going really fast because the camera light meter is reading the light and it's like, whoa, there's a lot of light. Don't stay open for very long. We don't need light. And then she was basically putting filters over so that she could control the amount of light going in so she could make the film do what she wanted right Right. so she was manipulating it knowing how to use the camera so she knew how to use the camera well right
0: yeah she was very um technically savvy i would say and like a total perfectionist i actually wrote here liz what's an aperture (laughs) thanks liz (laughs) you're welcome Anyway, so this film did pretty well, even outside of Germany. It won the silver medal at the Venice Film Festival. And although, according to Wikipedia, it wasn't universally well received. And for that, she blamed the critics, quote unquote, many of whom were Jewish. So what I found with the Wikipedia article, they straight up say she's a Nazi sympathizer. And then everything is kind of geared towards proving that point. So I don't know about that statement. But Wikipedia 100% believes she's a full-on Nazi. 100%. But then they do go on to say this, which would suggest she has Nazi leanings. In the 1938 re-release of the film, two Jewish names were removed from the credits. And some say that that was at her behest. Around this time, she asked her... (laughs) the internet said, her admirer and friend, Julius Streicher, uh, who is the editor of Der Stürmer and a super rampant anti-Semite. He was hung in, or hanged rather, in 1946 for his war crimes. So she approached this guy she knew, Nazi guy, to help her with, as she puts it, the quote-unquote demands made upon me by the Jew Bela Ballas, Ballas, Riefenstahl's co-screenwriter on The Blue Light was an avant-garde film critic, and he was one of the names expunged from the credits to make what they called a Judengrind version, so that means Jew-free. Good
1: God. They were scrubbing Jewish people from existence.
0: Absolutely. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: And so when he saw
0: how well the film was doing, he wrote to her from his exile in Moscow to request his deferred payment from the film and was denied. So again, looking pretty sketchy, Lenny. It's, it's looking sketch for mm-hmm. Lenny. Hitler saw the film and loved it, and thought her to be a great talent, and thought that she epitomized the perfect German woman. She was athletic and artistically talented and
1: driven. He liked, and she made movies about mountains and and German mastery over mountains, which he loved that shit. Yes. All I know about him and his love of art, because he destroyed degenerate art, which was basically, and you probably know more about this than I do, anything that wasn't like a picture of a mountain and a stag, he was like, anything else is degenerate art, burn it. Right, right.
0: Yeah, so she had seen him speak in 1932. It was the same year it came out, and the same year that he saw her for the first time, I guess, and was quite captivated with him as a public speaker, as many people were, but there was definitely a mutual admiration there. He arranged a meeting with her, after which she was offered the opportunity to direct Der Sieg des Glaubens' The Victory of Faith, an hour-long propaganda film about the 5th Nuremberg Mm. Rally in 1933. And she said sure Hitler sounds great so she made it (laughs) it was actually considered lost until a copy was found in the 90s in the UK the reason they think is because Hitler was filmed standing next to a man named Ernst uh, Ruhm who he later had killed and it's said that he ordered all the copies of it to be destroyed oh Lenny Riefenstahl says there's no truth in that but what does she know that's the big question (laughs) Then Hitler, he was pleased enough with that, I guess, that he asked her to film Triumph des Villains, which is Triumph of the Wills, another propaganda film about the 1934 party rally in Nuremberg, and there were more than a million Germans there. Holy shit. Right? She says that she resisted, but agreed to do it on the condition that she not be involved in any more Nazi films, which is like problematic because she her whole thing is like i'm not political i was just making art but then if she said like okay i'll do it but then i'm not going to do any more nazi films after that isn't she recognizing that it was a political act yeah she's <laughs> she's
1: conceding that like she's involved yeah absolutely
0: yeah and
1: she did help plan and stage the rally for the film
0: huh. maybe that's just directing uh, i don't know
1: i don't but know but then i mean the other the other thing here is just a devil's advocate or whatever yeah Devil advocate me, baby. Would would she have been able to say no without being punished? I don't know.
0: Yeah, you know? I don't know. By all accounts, she had a pretty friendly relationship with him, mm. but, but he was obviously like a tyrant. So right. if she wasn't friendly with this man who held extreme power, then what? I don't know.
1: Right, and she had just made a movie that had been destroyed because one of the guys in the movie Hitler had killed, so maybe she was worried she would get killed. Probably.
0: Uh, But she denied that part. (laughs) She's like, no, no, that had nothing to do with it. Anyway, deny, deny, deny. It's a strong uh, theme throughout her story. Okay, so she said she wouldn't do any more Nazi films, but she did actually do a little one afterwards called Tag der Freiheit Unsere Wehrmacht, which means Day of Freedom, Our Armed Forces. She says that that was just like an addendum made to appease the German army because they felt they weren't well represented in the triumph of the wills. So, whatever. I don't know about that. When questioned about, like, Hitler's ideas about Jewish people and Romani people and people of color. Gay people. Gay people. She likes to mention that she had read Mein Kampf. I found this quote. I noticed that Hitler was glancing through a book on my desk. I saw that it was Mein Kampf. I had jotted such comments in the margins as untrue, wrong, mistaken. This is interesting, he said. You're a sharp critic. But then we're dealing with an artist. She has all these little bits that she likes to say to kind of uh... Kind of cover her butt. Well, yeah. I didn't agree with those things. Yes, exactly. She's like, you know, he wrote this thing. Most of it seemed really great and hopeful. And no, I didn't agree with his racial ideas, but I didn't think he was going to kill Jewish people, basically. Right. Okay. So her next project was Olympia. Hitler invited her to film the 1936 Summer Olympics in Berlin. It was supposedly funded by the International Olympic Committee, according to Riefenstahl, But actually, it was paid for by a shell company that was entirely funded by the Third Reich. Oh, my God. (laughs) I don't think she knew that. But as I keep saying, what she knew and didn't know is what's always up for debate in her story. This film was widely noted for its technical and aesthetic achievements. She used tracks. She did this in Triumph of the Wills as well. She used a lot of tracks to like do panning shots.
1: Which wasn't, wasn't used before?
0: Not much. Like she brought it to prominence and made these sort of techniques popular with these films. But, you know, there are these amazing, well, well, no, I can say they're amazing. They're of a bad man, but there are these amazing shots of Hitler giving the speech where she had decided like, you know, let's film him in the round. And so she had a track that went it was like a semicircle around one side of him she was very good at creating visually interesting shots and like imbuing the shots just with the angles and the movement imbuing the shots with a lot of feeling like her whole thing was aesthetic right
1: right so really what you're saying is and why i heard about her in when mm-hmm. i was doing my photography degree is that she was she's responsible for a lot of techniques and angles and a visual language that we still use in film today. And oh, that no, absolutely. And that no one else had used before. I don't think she made any of it
0: up completely, but she expanded on things that people had tried, I guess. And yeah, That's cool. Did them really well and made them more commonly used. So yeah, she worked with the tracks to follow athletes' movements with the cameras. She played with slow motion. She filmed underwater. There are snippets in the sequences of movement where she would play a little bit backwards. Like, she there are shots of divers jumping and she'd taken the shots from below and so then she would just have little snippets where the diver was turning backwards she wouldn't actually show them like go back onto the diving board it was just to like shake up the movement and make it really like dynamic i've seen those clips
1: and it's totally disorienting it is because you don't even know what weighs up what weighs down it's really it's all about the visual it's all about the aesthetic it's about, like, nothing else, as you're saying. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And that's that's one of the main critiques of her work, and that's also, like, her main defense. <laughs> that it's all about aesthetics... Anyway, we'll get into the fascism stuff. Oh. But another thing she did is she would shoot from very, very high or very, very low. Mm-hmm. And while they were filming these Olympic events, they wanted the cameramen wanted to have these holes dug like next to the track so they could get these really low shots of athletes. The pole vaulters, those were done from below, and they're quite incredible. They're shot against the sky with all these clouds behind them. And I guess the cameramen wanted this to happen, and the Olympic people were like, no way. And so she went and talked to them, and then they let her have it. She, it seems she was very persuasive. guess so. <laughs> ba, ba, ba. Yeah, so many of the techniques were relatively unheard of at the time, as we were talking about. But it is pretty universally accepted that despite her sort of divisive history, she set a standard with this film and greatly influenced contemporary sports photography and coverage. Mm-hmm. You still see a lot of this stuff. Regarding Olympia, she denied Hitler having anything to do with it because, and I watched her say this in an interview, he didn't even like the Olympics. Wow. (laughs) She said that he wouldn't want to see people of color competing and winning medals. Right. So he hated the Olympics.
1: Because Jesse Owens was at the Olympics, right? Yes. At Olympics. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's funny because she said Hitler has nothing to do with it. But then famously, he and Goebbels, this propaganda minister guy, did not want her to feature Jesse Owens medal winning performance because he's black yep. and she fought against it and they let her have it and then it's so iconic right. right and also it's one of the main like arguments in her defense like oh no she wasn't a racist she fought she included Jesse Owens in that film and she really fought for it but like here's this Olympic gold medalist who he made the film great because look at what he can do
1: <laughs> yeah yeah it's interesting wow this is a real surreal mystery
0: isn't it isn't it though Oh, what I was going to say. So although she's like, no, Hitler hated black people. He didn't want me to do this. He wasn't into it. Filming this and it being such an international success in this beautiful film. I mean, it's beautiful. You can't really argue with that. It gave a lot of credibility to the Third Reich
1: because it
0: was filmed in Nazi Germany and Mm -hmm. it was beautiful and all this
1: acclaim, right?
0: I mean, for a while she was in the filmmaking world, you know, she was like,
1: Germany's darling. Everybody loved her. Right, and she was getting some cred overseas, too. Yeah, totally.
0: Olympia premiered for Hitler's 49th birthday in 1938, even though he hated the Olympics. Interesting. <laughs> she So she, after that, went on a publicity tour in America by ship, because it was... A million years ago (laughs) and arrived in New York City (laughs) November 4th, 1938, which was five days before Kristallnacht, (gasps) which means the night of the broken glass. So, do you know what that is?
1: I do know. It's when the German army or the German people, I can't remember which one, but I think the German military went out and like smashed and burned Jewish businesses. And so that's why they called it crystal knock because there's so much broken glass everywhere the next day. Yeah, yeah. And
0: German authorities did not intervene, so it was paramilitary forces. I don't know how that's different from military. Maybe you can tell me. But it was paramilitary forces and civilians, and but the authorities, the police, did nothing. They just watched it.
1: Right. So paramilitary means they are military-like in that they have guns and and um, they are organized, but they are not actually a military. Like it wasn't the German army
0: the official German army. Yeah, right? so
1: it just means like like a like a terrorist group or something.
0: Okay. This was SA paramilitary forces, so it was government endorsed because they're uh, part of the SA. Gross. Yeah. The whole thing was sparked by a German-born Jewish man in Paris killing a German diplomat
1: allegedly. Like who uh, knows what really right. happened, but that's what they said it was about. But this like obviously Germany was a powder keg and they were like we're going to destroy every Jewish business in Germany. Yeah, because one Jewish man killed a German. A Jewish German man, because one German man killed another German man, really. Right,
0: yeah, totally. So, 267 synagogues, 7,000 Jewish businesses were damaged or destroyed, 30,000 Jewish men were arrested and incarcerated in concentration camps during that event, And it was widely reported and sent shockwaves around the world. People thought Hitler was doing great things. I mean, like, maybe he's a little eccentric, but he seems like a strong leader. The German people love him. And then people were like, what the fuck is happening in Germany? Like, this shit is not good. And Lenny Riefenstahl, she claimed that when she heard about this, she was like, no, that couldn't be true. That couldn't be possible. Like, Hitler was behind this? No, it's not true. And so then all the American media outlets were like, what the fuck is wrong with Lenny Riefenstahl? Like she's denying that this happened, but she later she's like, "No, I just couldn't believe
1: that it was possible." So that's interesting. So she was basically like the voice of the German people, yeah, because she just happened to be in the states on a press tour, yeah, which then was a
0: total flop because this all oh, happened. Yeah, I bet. And well, on this press junket, she even continued to speak glowingly of the Fuhrer. Fuhrer. Just she, she fucking she fucking loved Hitler. Wow. Anyway, <laughs> September first, nineteen thirty nine, when Germany invaded Poland, she was photographed wearing a military uniform with a pistol on her belt with German soldiers. She was in Poland as a war correspondent. So again, this was like state funded. She was sent there with like her best filmmaking team to document it. On the twelfth of September, while she was in the town of Konski. 30 civilians were executed in retaliation for an alleged attack on German soldiers. And they literally dug pits and buried them there. Like it just horrifying stuff. So she, and she was present. She was there. An eyewitness testified that Riefenstahl had a sobbing fit when she saw them open fire on civilians. And she later claimed to have been so upset by the experience that she asked for permission to abandon the assignment and return to Berlin. In reality, however, she hitched a ride on a military plane to Danzig where she lunched with Hitler. She says he expressed shock and anger at the story, and she accepted his invitation to hear the victory speech in which he blamed England for the war. <laughs> There's just so much contradictory stuff where she's like, I-, I was so upset I got out of there, and then she's like, but then I had, then I had lunch with Hitler, told him about what happened, then I went to a speech after. Right. I don't know.
1: Yeah, it- it's It'd be hard, though, because like I said before, how can she go against him without just, she just would have been murdered?
0: Yeah, maybe. There are photos of her from that day where she looks upset uh, that were shot by an amateur photographer that was there. And in in her memoir, she said that she tried to intervene, but was held at gunpoint by one of the soldiers who threatened to kill her on the spot. Wow. Um, She also claimed not to have known that the victims were jewish she did get out of there pretty quickly following the incident but some critics have suggested that she left not because she was so upset necessarily but because she didn't want to be connected to it like she was always trying to stay just a step removed mm-hmm. from she wanted the jewish um, thing you know like from the killing and the bad stuff she like she wanted plausible deniability yeah, that's actually pretty much what i wrote <laughs> By October 5th, 1939, she was back in occupied Poland filming Hitler's Victory Parade in Warsaw. And after that, she left Poland and didn't make any more
1: Nazi-related movies. But
0: she made a few. She did. (laughs) She made a few, and she did it after she, she said she wouldn't, you know?
1: I'm so curious to hear what the rest of her life was like.
0: I didn't include a lot of the later life stuff, but I
1: could tell you about it quickly. Yeah, just like, did she keep making movies? Did she live in Germany? That sort of thing. Yeah. On the 14th of June,
0: 1940, the day that Paris was declared an open city by the French and occupied by German troops, she wrote Hitler a telegram that said the following. If this isn't incriminating, I don't know what is. With indescribable joy, deeply moved, and filled with burning gratitude, we share with you, my Führer, your and Germany's greatest victory, the entry of German troops into Paris. You exceed anything human imagination has the power to conceive, achieving deeds without parallel in the history of mankind. How can we ever thank you? Wow. (laughs) I know. But she later said, everyone thought the war was over, and that was the spirit in which she sent this telegram to Hitler.
1: Right, they didn't think it was going to go on for another five years.
0: According to her, everyone in Germany thought this was like the end of the
1: war. It's done. Right, like we took Paris, done. Yeah.
0: Next project, Tiefland, based on a popular opera at the time. It was a film that she had been working on for some time, actually. She'd started and then dropped it and then went back to it. On Hitler's direct order, the German government paid her 7 million Reichmarks, which I can only assume were later called Deutschmarks, I can see why they changed it. (laughs) In the film, they wanted extras who looked Mediterranean, so they borrowed, quote-unquote, borrowed a bunch of Romani people from a Salzburg concentration camp. She denies knowing that they would be forced to work unpaid, but evidence suggests otherwise. There are a lot of accounts of her having gone there and personally selected the people
1: but i guess it can't really be proven unless someone like photographed her or something but
0: i don't think they did which is why it's contested
1: the extras
0: most of them were sent to auschwitz afterwards were to they, die where they
1: would 100% die
0: yeah it is widely accepted it seems that she didn't know about that part she didn't know that they were all going to just go to die afterwards but uh, if she went and picked them like picked them out at the concentration camp then she saw what the conditions were there you know,
1: Yeah, that's pretty damning.
0: Yeah. In the 1980s, a woman named Nina Gladitz, a documentary filmmaker, located a few of the extras who had made it out alive, and they testified that Riefenstahl, accompanied by a police escort, had indeed chosen them herself. Wow. So here's what she says about her involvement with Hitler, which I've already touched on a bit, but she, her whole thing is she separates art and politics. She doesn't think they have anything to do with one another – Um, She says she had full artistic control over her films, and she didn't create them to be propaganda. They were just, it was visual art.
1: Pure aesthetic, as we've talked about. Yes. Which is, nothing lives in a vacuum, Lenny. (laughs) Right? She said
0: that she didn't know about the concentration camps until the end of the war when she was arrested, and they told her that all these people had been killed. That's such fucking bullshit. She talks a lot about how she has a fascination with the beautiful and that beauty is what inspires her, beauty is what drives her to make work. She's been very widely criticized for her films representing a visual of basically, like, fascism.
1: Right, because I've seen clips from those Nuremberg rallies. yeah. And those are like, if you want to make someone think fascism, you just play a clip from the Nuremberg rally movies. Yeah, yeah. With the columns and the marching people and the yelling. Right. And the Hitler yelling. Well, and
0: (laughs) even in the rally films, everyone that she shot was like young and able bodied and beautiful and white. (laughs) Um, Right. uh, I don't know how many people of color were in Germany at the time. I have no idea, but, but everyone was like young and beautiful except for Hitler. He was the only one, like, he was the one who stood out right. among the masses as an older man, a right. man of some advanced age. I mean, yeah. he was like 40 or something, but it was a different time. <laughs> he looked rough.
1: <laughs> you know what's funny about that is that I think there's a lot of erasure of people of color from European history. Yeah. So, like, David Oluelo, do you know who he is? He's a, he's a He's a black actor. He's from England. But his parents are from Nigeria. Okay. And I think he's lived a chunk of time in Nigeria as well, but I think he was born in England. And he has lived in America for many years now and does American movies. He played Martin Luther King mm-hmm. in Selma. Okay. And he said that when he was in England and he went to theater school and he was doing dramas, it was very difficult for him to get parts because they would say, oh, well, there were we'd like period pieces and there were no black people in England. And he was like, we all know that's not true. Right. There were lots of people of color. There were lots of black people in England in the 1600s, 1700s. Because you brought them here. They right. were here. So, like, this is ridiculous. Yeah. Side note. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, the cult of, like, body beautiful and the cult of beauty. She's criticized all the time for that being her whole thing. And she's like, what did I do wrong? What's the problem with that? Interesting. I don't know. When asked about people criticizing her films for embodying fascist notions and ideals. She said, like, I don't What do you mean? I don't even know what that means. I don't know what fascism is. I'm not political. I have no idea what you're talking about. Like, literally, I don't know what you mean by that question. What is fascism?
1: Hmm. That's really interesting, because how was fascism depicted before she depicted it so well? Like, I don't really know. When I think of fascism, I think of those films, but what was there before to describe fascism? Kind of like what came first, the chicken or the egg?
0: Well, there were earlier propaganda films that other people made for other regimes. Oh, okay. But her argument is always just,
1: no, it's art. I like pretty things. I don't know what you're talking about. It's totally separated. And my idea of beauty is what you see there on film.
0: Right. So on meeting Hitler, she said, here are some direct Lenny quotes. It was the biggest catastrophe of my life. Until the day I die, people will keep saying Lenny is a Nazi. And I'll keep saying, but what did she do? I was one of millions who thought Hitler had all the answers. We saw only the good things. We didn't know bad things were to come. Um, she says, I was living in Germany. At the time, 90% were in support of Hitler. Before that, 7 million people out of work. We were not thinking about what could happen later, and it was really our mistake not to think so, but I think millions of people have done it.
1: I I have to admit, while I'm not saying that I support a Nazi sympathizer or whatever, I do have to see her point there, because Hitler won everyone over. Yeah, yeah. Of course there were people in the underground and people within his ranks who were like, this guy's fucking crazy. He's going to do something insane. But a lot of people really liked Hitler, mm-hmm. and he got them to do a lot of things because he said so. Yeah. So I mean, she's not wrong there. She's not alone. Yeah. That's why the country was so fucked up psychologically afterwards for years. Yeah. Because they were like, how did we let this happen? Yeah.
0: I mean, I think she. It seems like she turned a blind eye quite a bit. Yeah. And that she wasn't a hundred percent in the dark. But like, I think a lot of people can't have known really, the extent of the atrocities. Like, they weren't seeing films of bodies being bulldozed. Right. They... I don't know. Well, I mean... I don't know. It's pretty wild. It's
1: why that the Germans teach in their schools everything that happened to everybody. right? So that it won't happen again, because they were so horrified by, like, how it happened in their country. Yeah. At
0: the end of the war, she was arrested and brought in to identify various war criminals and footage obtained by the Allied forces, she ended up being imprisoned and under house arrest for a number of years after that. In the denazification trials, she was found to be a Mitläufer, which directly translates to like fellow traveler, but it means Nazi sympathizer. So they couldn't punish her They were saying, like, what you did didn't directly cause damage to people, but you were, like, in with that crew, Mm -hmm. (laughs) basically. Mm -hmm. That being said, she did win more than 50 libel cases against people accusing her of knowledge having to do with Nazi crimes. So, you know, in court, they agreed that, like, you didn't know the extent of it. Right critics say that she created and perpetuated the idea that she was a victim of the time that because she was a successful and ambitious woman she was vilified and treated unfairly mm. even like even throughout her career but especially afterwards uh, and at best she was criminally ignorant and opportunistic mm-hmm. which i think obviously she she was definitely opportunistic mm-hmm. Oh, and when they arrested her, they confiscated her film equipment and her actual film, and she didn't get it back for many years later. So she did not make another feature film again. Ever. After that. No. So she didn't work for a long time. Later in life, like when she was in her 60s, she first she did a project in Kenya about the slave trade called Black Cargo. But it never got released. I'm not sure exactly what happened. She almost died in some sort of helicopter crash. Wow. Uh, was that in Kenya or Sudan? Now, I don't remember which country that was in. Because after Kenya, she went and lived in Sudan with the Nuba people. And she was there on her own for like eight months. She lived with them. Mm-hmm, okay. And she sort of says like, oh, I wasn't going there to document these people. I was traveling. But of course, I'm documenting them because that's just what I do. But she ended up publishing a coffee table book <laughs> of her photographs of these people. Oh. Which is, uh, I don't know. Is it something it's... you can still find and look at? Oh, yeah. I'm sure you can. I, I can't know. remember what it's called. Hang on. Internet. I gotta look it up, too. Um, Susan Sontag, who's a I know who she is art critic, right? Mm-hmm. Like, famous art critic. She wrote a whole essay about these Nuba photographies and was like, it's just... More fascism, more cult of the body, cult of beauty. She talked about how Lenny Riefenstahl pictured the men as all being these like perfect, beautiful, physical beings. And the women were sort of in the waiting for the men.
1: Yeah, I can kind of see it. I can kind of see it. I mean, she definitely didn't take photographs of anyone who wasn't like ripped. Yeah. Huh. Interesting.
0: The last of the Nuba, it was called. Wow. Wow. And then it's like, I don't know, it feels kind of colonial, this like white woman going and living with these oh, yeah. people and then profiting off of their riches. Oh, yeah. I mean, they liked her. They She lived with them for a while. They were definitely on friendly terms. But I don't know. Do you think she sent the money from the book back to them for like... Yeah, pr- probably not. Whatever? I don't know. I doubt it. <laughs> and then way later... She got into scuba diving. So she hired this gentleman, Horst Kettner. After the Nuba stuff, she hired this camera guy and trained him on how she wanted him to operate the camera, Horst Kettner. He was 20 and she was 60 and they, I think it started out as a working relationship and then became romantic. And then they were together until she died at the age of 101. Wow.
1: So, and he was like
0: 40. Isn't that crazy? Can you imagine being? No, he would have been 60 when she died. Can you imagine, like, being 40 and married to an 80-year-old? That's so wild. No. Anyway. No, um, not at all. So she trained him on camera work, and they ended up doing this project together. They got certified as scuba divers. She's the oldest. I think she, like, has broken records as the oldest scuba diver. She actually lied to get her certification because she was too old to do it, so she told them she was 50, and she was actually, like, 80 or something. (laughs)
1: And they did a bunch of
0: underwater photography and filming and. Neat.
1: Made up. And so she made money through imagery and like photography. She continued to do that. Yeah. Eventually. I just don't understand how she was paying her bills. I mean, I
0: think she was just doing it for fun. I don't know like what she was worth after the war. I know like her stuff was taken away, but then eventually given back. And I don't know like, would she have lost all of her money when she was arrested or would it still just be. In her bank accounts. I don't know. Because she made a lot of money off
1: Hitler. Right, right. And a lot of that might be money that would be taken away. I don't know. Unless she put it in a Swiss bank account. Maybe. (laughs) Well, no, but seriously, the Swiss have faced criticism. Oh, you're not making a joke? No, the Swiss have faced criticism for protecting Nazi money. Oh. Because they were neutral, right?
0: Right. Huh.
1: In the war. Yeah. So if a Nazi put a bunch of money there, people would be like money that he probably stole from the jewish people of like wealthy jews right right right
0: yeah so she she kept making stuff eventually and she released a film uh this like wildlife whatever i don't need to tell you you can you can just go google what it's called but she released this film uh with underwater imagery on her 100th birthday she died the day after hundred 100- no, no, that's not true. The day after her hundred and first birthday celebration, she became ill and then she died shortly after that. She I guess she had cancer for a while. She died of cancer ultimately.
1: Wow. Where and she lived in Germany her whole life?
0: Uh I believe so, yeah. Well, I mean she lived in Africa for spurts, but I believe her home base was Germany. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Lenny Riefenstahl.
1: That was really good. Did she? Didn't she?
0: Who knows? That was really good, Mel. Thanks. I feel like it's just so much information, but it's hard to leave any out because it's, I don't know,
1: mostly feels relevant. Yeah, no, it all was very relevant. I think she did. Yeah. That's my my guess.
0: Oh, and funny thing, this three-hour documentary, The Wonderful Horrible Life of Lenny Riefenstahl, which is pretty interesting, even though it's three hours long and mostly German, she uh, commissioned it. Like, she... Produced it or whatever, yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah, I found that out like at the very end of my research. I'm like, of course she did. <laughs> of course, <laughs> Lenny. Classic Lenny. Classic Lenny. Always trying to get spin that media. Spin, 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 Lenny. Yeah, cool. Well, I didn't know that stuff about Roman Polanski. I didn't know that stuff about Lenny Riefenstahl. That was really interesting. Thank you. Yours was very interesting too. Thanks. <laughs> What are you listening to? Reading or watching? What media
1: are you consuming this week, Liz? Okay, well I'm prepared with a podcast, so so I've got two of them. Is it a new one? You always have such
0: great recommendations.
1: One is called and it's not a new one to me. It's okay. actually been on for like a few years now at least, and maybe you listen to it. It's NPR's Code Switch. No, I haven't. I'm sure they got a lot of new subscribers recently in light of the Black Lives Matter resurgence. Yeah. But code switch is a... So do you know the term code switch? No. So if someone code switches, it's it means that they... Oftentimes, it's relating to a person of color or a black person. It means that they talk one way or behave and speak in one way with people of their own race, like with their family and their friends and their community. Right. And then when they go into professional life, which is predominantly white, rife with white supremacy and culturally different, they speak in a different way. okay. And they speak and act in a different way. So that's called code switching. And so it's a, a phenomenon that's been studied by linguists and stuff. And so the NPR podcast on code switching is is about race. It's not all about linguistic stuff, but it's just hosted by, I think, a Latinx lady and a black man. Mm -hmm. And it's been on NPR for a long time. It's a great podcast, super informative. And as we know, we don't want black people or people of color doing the work for white people to, like, educate us. So if you want to be educated by people who are putting this great information out there, that's a great podcast. And then another one I've been listening to is called Noble Blood which is like at the opposite end of the spectrum from Code Switch. Mm-hmm. Dana Schwartz is the lady's name who hosts it. And it's just these fun 20 to 30 minute stories of noble people from history. And it's often people I've never heard of, like the countess of such and such of such and such in 1743. And she did mm-hmm. something weird, like she plotted to kill her husband right. and then she'll tell the story of that. So that's a fun one. Nice. Yeah.
0: Cool. What about you? Well, I was gonna say one that we have both plugged before, but I don't really care. And this is in regards to race stuff also. Nicole Bayer on Why Won't You Date Me, I don't know if you've noticed lately or if you've been bro, listening bro, bro. lately, Liz, but I haven't been listening
1: lately. So Because I've been listening to other stuff, but right. I want to go back to her. Well, I
0: mean, she's been talking about race a lot. Oh, She's a black woman in America.
1: Yep. And all the stuff that comes with being a black woman in America. Right? And so what it is, it's not
0: that she's on there trying to make a big political statement, but she and her guests often just talk about like, what is it like to be a black person in America? And what was it like growing up as a black person? What was it like when you went into the white neighborhood and were like, holy shit. Yeah. And how people talk to each other. And I've just, I've really been enjoying it. I love her podcast anyway. And then sort of the insight that she brings to the table with these conversations as like a fucking cis white person. It's, it's
1: enlightening, really. Oh, yeah. No, she's, I think she's great. And I know exactly what you mean. She's a comedian, she's not a politician, so she's not overtly political, but she's she's really passionate about these issues. You know, the podcast is called Why Won't You Date Me? And so it's ostensibly about dating, but she'll talk about, you know, dating as a black woman. Oh, just all sorts of good conversations she gets into with her people.
0: Yeah, yeah, and race has been on high on the minds of, you know, everybody, I would hope.
1: Oh, yeah. Um... Hey, Liz, do you want to plug anything? Oh. Ooh. I mean, you could go look at my Instagram. I've been pretty low-key during COVID in terms of posting anything on there that's not like a picture of my cat mm. or one of the animals. So uh, you can go look at my Instagram, L-I-Z-Z-O-U-S-E. Nice. That's always fun. You know? And uh, this cool podcast that we're on right now. Yeah. Let's, uh, <laughs> Let's plug ourselves. In the butt.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Actually, I will plug the podcast. I'll do it, Liz. Do it. Because I'm not currently accepting any art commissions. So I'm going to make this all about the pod. Woo. You can find us at teachmetigerpodcast.ca. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn. We're on all the things. Neat. We're Teach Me Tiger Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. And if you enjoy the show, please subscribe, rate, and review it positively. No negative Nancys allowed. Only positive patties. Also, you can... Positive patties? (laughs) Yeah, positive patties. You can support the show monetarily with a very small financial commitment of $2 a month. And you will, in doing that, you will help me pay for an editor so I can work a real job. And in doing so, you'll also get access to bonus material for every new episode that comes out. So you have to do it because it's only $2 and you cannot afford not to...
1: Can't afford not to. Gotta do it. I think that's it. Did I miss anything, Liz? Awesome. That was great. No, that was good. We did a great job. Thanks, Liz. We're real professionals. I, th- I thought it was pretty good.
0: Well, Liz, thank you so much for your hard work, your diligent research, and for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I sure love ya. Right back at ya. And thank you so much to everyone for listening. I also love you so much. <laughs> and remember, it's, it's a, jungle a jungle out there. there. <laughs> nice teach me tiger how to tease you whoa 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 tiger tiger I want to squeeze you whoa 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 teach you